You're listening to TFM. Want to join in the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode? Join the Babel Conference, our listeners' discussion group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field, and we'll look forward to seeing you there. Hey, everyone. I'm Rod Roddenberry, and you're listening to Trek FM. Hello and welcome to TFM's local books and comic show here for Star Trek. And I'm just one of the hosts here, Matthew Rushing, and I'm so glad to have back with me uh, is the just the beautifully bearded Bruce Gibson. <laughs> yes, I can never decide if I'm going to have a beard or not. And, but yeah, right now I do. Yes, thank you. Excellent. Well, you know, I'm going to call this, you know, the collection of bearded gentlemen because Casey also has a beautiful beard as well. Mm, I like me a good beard. Yeah. What that can I say? Good. I that mean, was, was I don't know. If, yeah. It's, it's a good I copied you. <laughs> yes. Well, Matthew's got a nice beard this week. Yeah. He does. I, yeah. I, yeah, I, um, I actually uh, had to, to shave it down, but this is not a shaving podcast. Uh, this is books and comics for Star Trek, and just want to say a huge thank you to everybody who's listening and uh, appreciate it. You know, wherever you're listening, please subscribe so you'll get the shows as soon as they drop. You can also find us anywhere you get podcasts, and of course, if you're on a place like Apple Podcasts or Spotify where they allow you to rate or or you know write us a review, please do that, uh, especially with Apple Podcasts. We even read those reviews out on the show, and it's been a really long time since Literary Treks has had a review on Apple Podcasts, so we'd appreciate that. Uh, you can also find us on Twitter at TrekFM or on Facebook at Facebook.com slash TrekFM. You can join the listeners-only discussion group called the Babel Conference, where you can talk to listeners from all over the world about the shows that are happening here on the network and of course you can find us on trek.fm another really important thing we wanted to say thank you to our associate producers uh casey pettit who's with us as well as greg rosier for supporting the show through patreon which is the best place to go if you want to make sure that quality content from trek fm keeps coming to you you gotta go to patreon.com slash trek fm and become part of the team we can't do it without you guys and uh as you notice, we've got more content coming out these days. We need your help to make sure that continues. So go to patreon.com slash trekfm. Now, gentlemen, we have one comic here in our news items to review. And I'm really interested in both of your takes because this is Star Trek Discovery Adventures in the 32nd Century, number one, issue one. And many people know I don't watch Discovery. It's, it's not my uh, cup of tea. Uh, and Picard's more my, my, my cup of tea, but I wanted, I'm really interested in what you guys thought about this. Cause I know you both watch discovery and this is one of the, I mean, there haven't been a ton of discovery comics. So you guys remember the waypoint comic that was from Porthos's point of view. <laughs> that's yes, that's, I do. Yeah. That's what this reminds me of, but I, I loved it. I, I don't know. Like, I think last week we talked about, you know, what's the, 
what's the point of a story or, you know, like, do we really need these stories? And I don't know, like after reading this one, it was just a nice little uplifting view from a cat. And I'm a big time cat lover. So this one was right up my alley. I thought of the Porthos comic too, because we don't, we haven't had many comics or stories in Star Trek from the perspective of a pet, right? So I have to be honest with you. I was going into this really not looking forward to it because I thought I really don't care to have a grudge story of what grudge is thinking and what grudge is doing. Uh, and it's like, but you know, okay, I'll read it. And I have to admit, and I was just emailing with Mike Johnson who wrote this issue. And I told him that too, that I was not really going to be into this, but I actually really enjoyed it. And I think one reason it also helped is I read it out loud to myself. <laughs> so <laughs> I thought it was funny. Like I was actually laughing out loud at this. Like there's just certain lines and stuff like when Burnham comes onto Book's ship and Grudge has to deal with Burnham and Grudge is starting to warm up to Burnham and all these things that Grudge is saying like, this woman's here. Ugh, I don't know what I think about her. Disappointing that she's here, blah, blah, blah. I'm kind of getting used to her. And then Grudge is like, and then just when I'm getting ready to beginning to tolerate her, then we meet her friends and their big dumb ship <laughs> when Discovery arrives. And that just cracked me up at that point. And I started laughing throughout as she's exploring the ship and then she meets Stamets and says, I sense that he is extremely protective of his particular room and that he dislikes visitors. He earns my respect. <laughs> well, and uh, after Grudge's first spore jump, too, you know, they always make a big deal in the show about how people can get a little queasy and a little disoriented after their first time spore jumping. And, you know, Grudge feels that same thing and is like, maybe I can get used to that. And then bleh, pukes all over the floor right in front of Detmer. <laughs> I've made my feelings known. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's just the attitude of the queen. That's what we're getting yeah. here, right? the attitude of the queen but then when uh the bad guy that impersonates book gets on the ship and looks like book but isn't book grudge figures it out because it doesn't smell like book and once grudge saves the day and book and burnham do show up grudge is like this time cleveland smells right unfortunately so does burnham <laughs> <laughs> so it was a little cute attitude comments here and there that i enjoyed so yeah i, yeah, I was surprised yeah, the uh, the voice of the cat, I guess, like it's just everything you would think a cat thinks and um, behaves. And the the one thing I wish it had was like if we could have learned more about why she's a queen, more than just that she's a cat and and she's book's queen. That almost and we saw that she knows how to manipulate the ship to capture that that imposter, and so. I almost wanted to see like was she the reason the ship ran so well? Like was she like actually? the engineer or something <laughs> yeah yeah that's a good point i thought maybe going into the story you might get an origin story of how they met mm. yeah that didn't happen but no i mean it was cute it was cute it's a quick read there's not a whole lot of dialogue um i would say if i compare it to the portho story i like this one better yeah i think i'd agree with that and it ends with live long and prosper because you got to have a oh cat in there. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm glad that you guys ended up liking it. You know, I think it is funny. I, you know, saw the comic as well and just thought, oh, man, they get cat 
story. That's interesting. But I'm glad that it was fun, you know. And, and sometimes, you know, that's something that a comic can do that you can't do really in any other medium. You know, I guess the only place you might be able to do this is some type of animation. Uh, and so, yeah, that that is really fun. So, yeah. Hey, if you guys were uh, going to give that one a rating, what do you think you'd give it? We're on a show that does ratings, and I came unprepared. <laughs> uh, yeah, Curse I, you, rushing! <laughs> you know, it's so weird. It's hard, so hard for me to to grudge this. Um, oh, that, that was a pun. There. Nice. <laughs> so, I, I'm know, not going to begrudge you it. I don't know, because it's like, this is not the kind of Star Trek story I typically would want. I would not want a series of grudge stories, but it was cute. And for what it is, it's really good. So I'd almost say a five out of five, but it's hard for me to give this a five out of five for a Star Trek story. So I'll give, I'm going to knock it down to a four out of four smells of Burnham. A four out of four or four out of five? I'm sorry, four out of five <laughs> times of smelling Burnham. That's just what I should say. Nice. Yeah, I, I would think the same thing. Yeah, like, I mean, it's a fun story by itself. You know, if it was just a one shot in its own thing, I could see giving it a five. But I think for the same reasons you just said, Bruce, I, I would also give it a four out of five vomits that uh, Detmer has to clean up from the corridors. <laughs> Oh, man. Well, uh, with that, uh, maybe it's time we jump into our feature and get slapped by the left hand of destiny. So this is really fun because, you know, we have not covered this series. And uh, this is a very cool series because it's one of those books uh, that is written by not only an author uh, that we've had on the show, Jeffrey Lang, but it's also written by one of the actors. And so, you know, we have this uh, incredible opportunity to get storytelling, not just from one of the authors, but somebody who really inhabited the character. And I always love when they get a chance to do that. I think it's it's really cool and really special um, that we get that opportunity. Um, and, you know, J.G. Hertzler did such a great job of just taking everything that Martok was and I think making him just this incredible character. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm really excited to j- dive into this with both of you because I like both of these guys. You know, uh, Jeff Lang's been on the show a couple of times, loved his books. And uh, th- then, of course, you know, I love Martok. He's actually one of my favorite Deep Space Nine characters. So, um, yeah, this is really fun. Um, so uh, before we even get into anything on the outline, um, had you guys read this book before? No, I was so happy. I'm holding it here in my hands right now because I don't remember when it was, but remember the Borders bookstores? They all went out of business, right? So I would go to the different Borders that were closing and cash out on all these different Star Trek books. And the two books of this series were on the shelf and I bought it. So whenever that was like maybe eight, nine years ago, whenever it was, and I've had them on my shelf just waiting to read. But then I never really got to them because there were other books I had to read for some podcast, you know, called Literary Treks. And so I never got around to them until now. So I'm very happy about this. This may be a first because this is one that I have read, actually. Mm. I know. Uh, But I remember shockingly little from it. So um, I was excited to kind of get back into it. And anytime we can get into the Deep Space Nine universe, uh, I'm all right with that because – 
you know, Deep Space Nine did things with their, I, I don't even want to call them secondary characters, but, you know, not the main cast that other Star Trek shows just have not necessarily been able to do. And, you know, with a character like Martok that almost redefined Klingons or, yeah, really redefined Klingons uh, even further than Worf ever did. And so getting to see him, uh, see the actor, you know, participating in the, the writing of this book is really great. And I think he actually wasn't, it wasn't like a William Shatner situation. I think he actually had a hand in, in doing some of the writing for this as well. So that's, that's really cool. And I echo what you said, Matthew, like Jeffrey Lang is one of the, one of the great Star Trek authors. I recently read Immortal Coil, uh, which was a fantastic book. And so like just getting to get back into this book was super exciting. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I'm right there with both of you. And um, I had read this before, but it's been quite a long time. In fact, I read it when it first came out. So, I mean, this is years and years and years ago. So there's parts of the story that I remember, but I don't quite remember how it all plays out, which is exciting, you know, because this is a duology. Uh, and so I'm I'm glad that, you know, I don't really kind of remember how everything uh, ends up panning out. But, you know... Um, I think it's interesting because, you know, the, the, there's a few Deep Space Nine actors who came in and wrote books. You know, Andrew Robinson, and then, you know, you got Armin Shimmerman, uh, who did as well, and, of course, you know, J.G. Hertzler, and, you know, all of them playing, quote-unquote, minor characters, right? But ha except for Quark, who was one of the main characters, but, like... All of these people, um, you think of all of the characters of Deep Space Nine, and they're all incredible. You know, just we know more about them than anything else. And so, like you said, Casey, to kind of get this story um, with uh, Hertzler involved, I think it's just it's a really neat opportunity. So, um, this story takes place right after the end of Deep Space Nine, what we leave behind, and we're leaving Deep Space Nine behind as uh, Worf and Martok are on their way for Martok to officially accept the Chancellorship. You know, um, they're on the Klingon world of Kronos. And one of the things that um, is really interesting is there are a lot of dream sequences here in the book. Uh, and the very first one kind of introduces a big theme of the book, which is the fact that the Klingons have had too much war and it has impacted them as a people. And I really enjoyed how this plays out in the story because Casey, you rightly mentioned he really helps redefine Klingons and kind of give us a whole new understanding of, of a Klingon who hasn't been raised by humans in a very interesting way. Um, and this seems to be the main thrust of this book is how was Martok going to help maybe redefine a Klingon empire that, that has fallen prey to too much war and having a misunderstanding then of, in the end, like kind of losing the idea of what honor is. Like what does it really mean to be a true Klingon and what has to change here? Yeah, and it's it's interesting too because like if you go all the way back to Next Generation when Picard and Worf helped Gowron ascend to 
the chancellorship of of the Klingon people. And really, at the time, he was a pretty good choice because of who he was running against, I guess, with that being Duras. And once Gowron takes over, that's when we start seeing the Klingons trying to kind of almost not really get back to their old ways, but kind of, you know, in that, like, they're going to conquer and they're gonna, they they want war. And as far as you, you know, once we get into Deep Space Nine and there's, like, their civil war and 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 the Dominion War and everything that's going on there, um, you know, it seems like the Klingons as a people are tired. And uh, Martok, especially as having led them through war and and his time in the, Domin- uh, the Dominion uh, prison that... Uh, we saw in Deep Space Nine, he was there with like Bashir and Orf and Garrick, I think. But but you you also see, I mean, you see Mar- uh, Martok, who comes from no position of power, raises to the basically be the leader of their Klingon military forces, and then ascends even further to the chancellorship. And so there's even a lot of this doubt in him. You know, he's tired, he wants to go home, but he's also like, I, I don't know if I'm a chancellor, like, I, you know, I've been in the military and before that, I was basically a farmer, and um, it, it, it's almost like he's going to redefine the Klingons again, and, um, but he doesn't know what that even means, I think, and I think even the Klingons don't really know what that means. And I like how you say that the Klingons are tired and Martok is tired, it's like, it's like all the characters, all the Klingons really are just kind of tired of how things have been and everything that they've gone through. And yeah, Martok's just like, I don't even know if I want the chancellorship. I don't know if I want to be doing all this. I don't know if I really want to be the leader into this new realm of Klingons and all this stuff. And it's like, I feel like nobody really wants to take on that mantle until, of course, we find out later who does kind of want to do something. But it kind of reminds me of today, right? I mean, this book was almost 20 years old now, and it's it, it, it kind of reflects even on today of, like, where are we going as a society? How are we changing? Which direction do we want to go in? And I think everybody's getting tired, even in today's society, about how things are. And that's how I feel like the Klingons are right now. We're just tired. Yeah, I, I like that a lot, what both of you are saying, and, and I think it's something... That was, of course, really interesting to read because, you know, a lot of thematic elements in this book, as you rightly point out, Bruce, felt even more poignant in light of today. And there is this there is this sense that we've lost the Klingon soul. Like, what does it mean to truly be a Klingon? Right. And where has that gone? And and part of that has been lost. And we see that in one of the um, major villains of the story. And this character, Morjad, is one which kind of revels in senseless and, and like over-the-top violence. And that idea that that's somehow what it means to be a Klingon is is senseless violence, violence for violence sake, basically, you know, when, you know, for Klingons, you know, of course, that has nothing to do with it, what it means to be a warrior and to be honorable, you know, Um, and so this intense frustration that Martok has with 
trying to understand how he's going to help in any way possible to make this better. And then, of course, everything gets thrown completely out of whack as basically as soon as they get back to Kronos. Um, but that issue of like, there's something sick in the Klingon soul. Something's died. Something's wrong. You know, it's... And and diagnosing what that is and then how to fix it is really fascinating. And I think one of the things that, that that's kind of really interesting that goes along with that, it's another big thematic element, was this idea of the problem with politics for Klingons, which is, and there's a great quote in the book that says, you know, yes, politics had become more important than serving people. Politics was an end into itself. And if there was anything that spoke to the reality in which we live today, it was that. Like, Klingons aren't really known for being political creatures. And yet, Galron began to play these political games, and we see that, obviously, like, with what happened with the Duras family and everything. And I guess what's interesting is, is that this book makes a point of that, but when you think about, you know, what happened at Kittimer to Worf's parents, that's a political thing, right? Because people had betrayed uh, the Empire to the Romulans, you know? So there are, all the, there are a lot more political machinations going on, but the, it's recognized finally that we have been playing political games only for politics' sake, which means that that really benefits politicians and nobody else. And and so our politics is not even doing the job it's meant to do, which is to benefit all of us Klingons, right? And again, it just it felt so relevant. I thought that was really interesting because it's another one of the, the pieces of the puzzle where we're picking out, okay, that's something that's wrong here and, and has been corrupted here in the Klingon Empire. And you know, they tried, I feel like they've been trying for years to go back to the old ways or to, you know, to, I mean, when the clone Kalos came back, they set him up as just a figurehead. I mean, it was out in the open that he was a clone. He didn't really have any power, but he was supposed to really be leading by example of, you know, what Klingons used to be like and what they want to go back to. But the problem they faced was that Gowron wanted to keep the power and pretty much got in the way any time that, that Kalos tried to do anything. And so it, the Klingon Empire is already – it's not even an empire. It's really just a dictatorship with whoever ascends to the throne, and it's kind of a messy way to do it, too. They just ritual combat or whatever, and then that's your new ruler. I mean, if – Captain Kirk had made it to the home world. I'm sure that he would have introduced them to democracy, but like, you know, they don't, (laughs) they don't have that. Um, Which I think has led a lot of the people to, to get kind of um, calloused and uh, almost untrusting of the, of the government to the point where Morjad shows up and his mother who blow up their entire first city to which is the seat of their government to basically say you know what we are literally wiping the slate clean here and we're going to start over but essentially doing the same thing that any other Klingon has done before and puts himself in power and really it seems like his mom is the one pulling the strings but you know he he thinks he's he's the figurehead in this situation i guess 
I, I'm a little uncomfortable in some ways to talk about this because I don't want it to get political, even though this, as you're saying, it's, it's political. All these things that are going on are definitely that way, but I'm just relating it to today's world. And I'm just picturing the, some of these Klingons going around with hats saying, make Cronus great again, because it's going back to that whole yeah. old ways thing, right? You're saying like some of these Klingons want to go back to the old ways, the way it used to be. And I mean, we have that in society now and, and not just in America. I'm just using that as an example, but you know, everywhere in the world, there's going to be people that want to go back to the old ways. And there's people who want to move forward into some new way. And you have that conflict between the two. And then we've got this insurrection that happens. And again, I see parallels to today where it's just like when you're going through a change, there's going to be bumps in the road where people are against it. And some people get real radical about it. And that's what we get with with Morjad, it's like being a radical in this situation to really call attention and take over things and, and call out the messaging here. And poor Mor uh, Martok is just like, I don't know if I really want to be involved in all this. <laughs> you know, and the poor guy, it's like, I'm feeling for him in this. But then Worf comes in and he's like, you're the hero Kronos deserves but not or the one that it needs but not the one it deserves i guess <laughs> right because he doesn't seek power right. that's the difference right and that's the other thing real quick about wharf is to is that i'm glad that i thought this would end up being a wharf heavy book because mm. wharf is you know wharf you know but wharf does not play a huge role in this he's he's one of the supporting characters so i really appreciated that of this well, and, and what's interesting, Bruce, and I like that you bring that up because, and obviously, I think anybody reading this book now might pull some of those those thoughts out. But what was really interesting about this, and, and this book rightly shows, is that Orjad is, is actually using these political pontifications, but for political profit and personal profit, not for any type of like political movement that's actually going to have any impact on the the Klingons at large. In fact, one of the quotes there is that they are going to remake in their image. Right? And um I think that's the thing that about the politics here is that it it what we see is that, you know, politics is and we all understand is is, is meant to be a tool humans use for the betterment of their societies the best forms of government the best forms of politics are that which does that and yet here politics on chronos is disintegrated into this point of like it's it's a it's a game that only helps out a very few amount of people and the rest of the klingons just they get thrown into wars they might not want to be in you know like it's just Again, it's it's very interesting how relevant it seems, and the rhetoric, the the the, the actual political rhetoric is it sounds patriotic to you know the people, right? But it's really a bait and switch, and I think that's the most that's the most interesting thing because this unexpected enemy uh, turns out to be a, a youthful indiscretion. Of Martox with a, a woman, um, Gothmara, who was the daughter of a man that Martox served under. Uh, she also apparently happens to be quite mad mentally. 
And Morjad is Martok's son. And he never knew that, you know, he, uh, Morjad existed. And I, I loved this kind of revelation happening. Um, but yeah, I mean, everything that, that this, and this unexpected enemy is, is using is something to basically remake the Klingon empire in the image they see fit. Um, and not for really the benefit of the Klingon people at large. And, and that I think is just fascinating. Well, Morjad apparently he, he seems just to be that charismatic personality that even though he just blew up the first city and killed a ton of people, he he gets on screen. It's he admits to it right there, but still ha- has the support of even the people that are on the ship with Martok right there, and you know charisma is a is a great trait. For, to have, especially for leaders and, you know, something that a lot of polit- politicians have. But if it's used incorrectly or if it's used for bad purposes, I guess, like in this case, it's a very dangerous tool uh, that that they have. And, you know, Kothmara is, is definitely off her rocker, it sounds like, even when um, – when they were younger, when, when Martok was with her, that's why he left. Like he didn't know that, you know, they ended up uh, pregnant or anything, but it it sounds like she was kind of mad to begin with, like mad in the head. Um, and she has done something to her own son to get him to be this kind of powerful presence, to be able to, to rally the troops almost of, of Kronos and, and get, get the Klingons to follow him again, even though he just blew up, you know, the capital city where they were supposed to be welcoming their new chancellor and, you know, to the point where Martok ends up having to take off on his own because he doesn't know who he can trust. Um, and it, it's just really interesting because we don't really know why, like the reasons behind they're doing this other than just, like you said, trying to trying to remake the Klingon Empire in their own image. And that's scary, you know, to 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 think about this charismatic leader that people are just kind of following and we don't know where he's going to take us. And we may end up just destroying ourselves for this. And um, especially because what, one of the things that they've done is resurrected these ancient beasts, the Herc, you know, the, the monster that hides under every Klingon child's bed. And so like, I mean, they've, they've got all this power and, and we don't know yet what they're going to be doing with it. By the way, the Herc, I, I think they're cool. <laughs> I yes. really like that in the book. Um, I mean, anything that scares a Klingon, that's cool. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they're terrifying. I'd like to see what these things actually look like. But Morjad is a big baby, you know? And, and the fact that, you know, Casey, you're saying about him being this leader and all this stuff. Like, I just see him as being the pawn of Gothmara that's just, she's like, go do this, go do that. And he's like, yeah, ma. Yeah, mom, whatever you tell me to do. Yeah, look at me. He's just, he's so immature. I don't think he really knows what the heck he's doing. He's just doing whatever his mad uh, mother <laughs> is coming <laughs> up with. And and the thing is, it's like, that's one thing I would knock about this book because it's a book one. You know, like, what is the motivation 
of Garth Mara behind this. She's the one who's in the power of making all this stuff happen. And why is she doing it? And I, I'm assuming we'll get that in book two. But that's the question I leave is like, why is this going on? What got her to this place? How is she able to do this? Why is her son just following everything that she tells him to do? And why are these others going along with it? And But then we find out there's this way she can control people. She has this ability. What's that about? And again, I guess we'll find that out in book two. So I'm curious to find that out. Uh, but right now, I don't like these characters because they're just destructive. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's a really good point, Bruce, in this sense that, you know, with it being a book one, there's a lot of unanswered questions. Um, and, and specifically, I think about the motivations of these characters. And, you know, they do seem to be really powerful characters in the sense that this coup has been very well planned. You know, uh, they have the influence, they have the power. Um, we get, uh, you know, some scenes that kind of help build in that um, when Ross, uh, Admiral Ross is talking to Kira on Deep Space Nine and the idea that there has, you know, been this senator who's been a part of this kind of more fringe group, you know, um, that is basically been kind of talking about the, this idea of this um, pa- patriot remaking of the Klingon Empire, you know, um, and... So they've been seeding these ideas, it seems like, for quite a long while. And then, like you said, it also seems like she has the ability to control the minds of her followers in some way or influence them greatly. And then, of course, bringing back the Herc. I mean, there's some serious genetic engineering apparently going on there as well. So, I mean, there's a lot of power behind this character. And it'll be interesting to see what of those questions is answered in book two? Because I think this is one of those books where it's difficult for me to judge it too harshly one way or the other because it truly is a duology. You know, it's it's kind of like the Avatar series, Avatar book one and two. It's really meant to be just one story. They just split it up into two, and I think that's more along the lines of making more money um, than it has to do with necessarily for story um, need because, I mean, this would have been probably like a 400-page book if they had put both of them together um, because unlike my iPad, it was like this this book was like 154 pages, and then the next book's like 160-something or maybe a little longer, and it's like could have like put those two books together you know so yeah, the paperback it's 291 pages yeah so i mean it could have been and it would have been a great format to put in the trade paperback at that point too you know uh so um but i mean i think the the crazy thing that i and and the thing that i do like about them um as these unexpected enemies is the fact that this is kind of the way we see these things happen in real life you know, we see this radicalization of people, uh, you know, we see this, these political messages to which they even make a point that Marjad's speech actually doesn't say anything, but it sounds good. You know, it's like, just give them the right political language of like hope and change and that'll be good. You know, I, I think that's brilliant. Like they've really kind of tapped into something in the sense of like, Unfortunately, human beings are very uh, 
susceptible to this kind of thing, um, which is disturbing, um, but apparently Klingons are too. So I, I think that's one of the things that actually kind of makes this um, a good story for me so far. Yeah, and a scary situation for the Klingons. Just, I mean, that's kind of where that charisma comes in. Like he can say a lot without, or he can speak a lot without saying a lot. You know, as 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 Martok is flying towards Kronos to be christened as Chancellor, and you know this whole ship around him that is sworn to protect the Chancellor, and as Marjot's giving his first speech. You know they're looking around the br- around the bridge of the ship, going, "Okay, some of these people are are falling into this guy's speech." And, you, you know, like it's almost like they're in this book one, they're kind of wreaking a lot of havoc, so that in book two, maybe they're Gothmara and well, more her plan, I guess, is to then you know be able to rebuild the empire because you know it's like oh well we can blame this on martok or gowron or whoever you know kales even and you know will be your savior that's that's almost where i can see it going well i know you two have read book two and don't really remember that much because it's been a while and i haven't read book two but i have to believe that there's somebody else that is behind this power of garth mara like I, I just I don't know. I'm just having a hard time believing that this mad woman is the one that has gotten this power on her own. There's somebody else behind it, and I don't know if you remember that or not. We're not going to reveal it here, but I'm believing there's something more behind this. Maybe it's Sila, because <laughs> <laughs> she's behind everything. Um. I, the, the thing about this book that I really I thought was interesting is that the way in which we see Kalos and Worf talking about the idea that Martok is the perfect person to be in power now because he can be a symbol of what Klingon should be. And partially that is, and I think what makes him so beautiful as the leader now is he doesn't want it. He's have he's had this power thrust upon him. His desire is not to lead, and that's honestly what makes him the perfect person to lead because everybody else in in the Klingon society wants more power for their own gain, and that's just not Martok. And and I think that them talking about the idea that he's the perfect person as a symbol to forge the empire anew, I think part of that is that Martok truly understands and lives out as an example what true Klingon honor looks like in a way that no other Klingon that's been, you know, in the limelight as Martok has been, especially with the Dominion War, has done in generations, it seems like. Yeah, and it says a lot when Kalis is telling him that too, because Kalis was that symbol, but it, it's not enough. He's like the start of that he's that spark of symbolism he's that one who starts it but he can't be the end-all be-all of that symbol that somebody of the klingons today somebody who doesn't have that legacy needs to show that symbolism and that needs to carry on to the next person too but it needs to build from there and i like that kalis is you know letting martok know that you are that one you know i started it and you're going to keep it going or you got to take it to the next level 
because people will see and trust Martok probably even more so than Kalis. Well, one of the things I think the book does really well, too, is it shows us where Martok is from, where he grew up. And it we've always heard that he's from the Ketha Lowlands, but we never know what that means. And it's essentially the landfill of Kronos. And he he says in the book when he's trying to like almost brush off this mantle of chancellor, like, I don't come from power. I don't come from riches. I am... I, I am from this land that is is almost a wasteland, and you know he's he's a common person and cling on wasteland. <laughs> Sorry, I had to. Yes, um, and he, I think that yeah, that that's what is gonna make him a better leader because we we see flashbacks and dreams of of when he was a lowly soldier on a ship, you know, cleaning the floor and doing all the kind of the grunt work and then knowing who he is now. And and the fact that like other soldiers and other Klingons, like common Klingons can look up to him as their leader and not just some other high powered family, you know, that sits on the council that gets to rule the empire again. Um, it he's, he's really, um, a symbol, the leader, you know, of the people, by the people, for the people. You know, that's that's what Martok represents, I think. Yeah, I think that's a really great point, Casey, because, and like both of you pointed out, that that's one of the things that is, I think, so neat about this story is finally getting to see the reality of, of where Martok comes from. And, and and like you said, this actually being basically the dump, the literal <laughs> dump of Kronos, um, it's it's not a great place to be. But what it's forged is something that is exactly what Klingons need, which is a man who understands humility, which is a man who understands honor, um, which is a man who understands what it means to be a good, true man. And that's something that, again, we just have not seen with a lot of Klingons, especially those that have had power or have been a part of the major houses of the, the Klingon Empire. Because, again, it's been so much about political jockeying for position. And that's, that's not... And because Martok wasn't raised in that, he has no desire for that. You know, he just wants to be the best Klingon he can be for the most amount of Klingons possible, right? And that he's willing to give his life, he's willing to do whatever it takes to defend the Empire, and this is what makes him the perfect symbol for a new Kronos. One the which is more self-sacrificial, which is what true honor is really all about. And I think that's the cool thing about this story so far, is we're really leaning into that and i think that that's great and and part of that is we're leaning into the fact that deep space nine created this incredible character to which it allows us to be able to do that in the first place he i don't know martok he i feel like as it was written to in the story he had to strip his armor off he dressed up as a beggar to try to work his way back to the first city to get closer to Morjad. And I, th- I thought just the symbolism of that was great. I mean, like he, we 
we now have seen his home, you know, the Ketha Lowlands. We know where he comes from, but he is now literally going into, you know, this kind of battle with Morjad and Gothmara as a beggar, almost. You know, he's he's the way he's dressed up. And then, um, you know, one of the other things, too, is that his, you know, I feel like Cardassians were really the, the alien species that was really all about family, but Martok and Cirilla too, they both show how much Klingons value family. And I mean, we, we kind of know that with like, you know, Worf son of Moog, Martok son of whatever his father's name was, Earthhog. <laughs> um, but to see the actual fa- family dynamics and to hear Martok's thoughts about Cirilla, we've always heard him talk about, oh, the mighty Cirilla, You're like, don't get on her bad side. You got to impress her if you want to make it into my family, that kind of thing. But to know that that's not just words, like that's truly how he feels and, and that he, his one regret when he thought he was about to die was that he wasn't going to get to see Cirilla again or spend one more night with her and even when they find out that two of their kids have died, like that's, you know, on top of their minds. And so like, e- even as Martok is kind of fighting for the empire, he's also fighting for his family um, against his illegitimate family, I guess. But um, I-, I thought it was uh, very well written. And-, and again, just a more, more reason why he's like the perfect person to be this symbol for the Klingon empire of like what it means to be a true Klingon. And, you know, he's got honor among his family and, you know, he was telling Cirilla this thing with her, the, with Gothmara, that happened long before we knew each other. That was, yeah, this youthful indiscretion. I am, I'm always going to be faithful to you, you know, like this, you know, don't worry about that. And, uh, you know, I have honor in our marriage. <laughs> well, as you're talking about him, it, I, I wanted to say, well, he sounds like a great man, but I don't want to say man, but he sounds like a great Klingon, but not in the traditional sense that a Klingon would say you're a great Klingon, because he is very humble and family is important to him and not the honor of just family, but he loves his wife and he loves his children. And so him trying to get back to the capital isn't just trying to get back to fix a problem or take a leadership role and trying to correct what was wrong, but to save his wife and the importance of saving his wife and not just letting her be, you know, sacrificed for the honor of Klingons while he goes in to do his job. It's like, no, it's important that he gets his wife. And he's very humble in the fact that he also employs the use of a Ferengi. And that's the kind of thing you wouldn't expect a Klingon to do. A Klingon would be too proud to have a Ferengi help them try to get to the city. They can do this on a, on their own. What can a Ferengi do? And yet he employs this Ferengi to help him out and builds a relationship with him to the point that the Ferengi goes to help Martok later. And so it's that bond of friendship and family that Martok really shows. And again, it's because it's not about power for him. It's about relationship and it's about others and having those bonds and helping others. And that's why he would be a perfect leader. He wants to help others. Well, and I think it's interesting because, you know, Martok's experience here has helped him see the wisdom of having allies that you don't expect, right? Um, and to be open to people surprising you. And I think one of the things that really helps in that, you know, when you think he, when he's on the, the penal colony uh, of the Dominion, right, he's 
he is literally living with and having to get to know intimately these aliens of other species, right? And they're having to work together and trust one another so they can try to escape. And then he spends all that time on Deep Space Nine and, you know, getting to know people like Quark and so many other alien species to him and seeing their worth, seeing their value, seeing um, the, the fact that having relationships and getting to know people on a personal level and not just a, a level where, oh, I just discount that because, oh, they are fill in the blank, right? You know, that I can paint with a broad brush. Martok is, again, he's just this very unique connect. He's this very unique conglomeration of different experiences than most Klingons have had, which opens his mind to ideas which most Klingons might reject. And yet, I think, again, this is one of the things that makes him the perfect leader for the Klingon Empire now is because those ideas are not things to which are going to destroy the best of the Klingon Empire. No, they're actually going to make it stronger and more resilient than ever if the Klingon people will accept the type of leadership and and understanding that Martok has been able to cultivate of years and years of service out there to the Empire. Um, and I think this just goes to show the uh, the wisdom of Martok, right? I, he probably wouldn't call himself wise, and that's one of the things that makes him wise, you know, is that he has been able to, to have these experiences that that have shaped his knowledge and understanding, and then he's able to act on those that knowledge correctly, which is the definition of wisdom, which I think, again, it's, it's, it's so cool. Like, when you think of, like, this, just this character, I don't even know how many episodes he's in in Deep Space Nine. He's in a few, right? But the fact that this book can bring out so much of what happened in that series... And then really build on that to this point, I think is really, really neat. So, Yeah, it does feel like a continuation of his arc in the series. It didn't feel like it's just an add-on. As I was reading it, it just felt like it naturally fits in with the series. Like, this is the next episode, and it's going to focus on Martok. And this is why I think it's so good to have J.G. Herzler as, as one of the authors, because he, no one knows him better, no one knows Martok better than he does, and I, I would even say probably the writers of the show probably don't know Martok as well as J.G. Hertzler does because he actually embodied that character and probably had his own backstory in his head. And, you know, I'm wondering how much of that made it into the book. But regardless, I think that just made made the voice of the character in the book so much more powerful because it was, you know, he had a hand in writing it. I do have one question for for both of you. We've had nothing but effusive praise for the book so far. Was was there anything that you did not like at all uh, about this first book in this series? I'm just gonna fill it up with dead air. Um, you know, yeah. I, you know, I think that um, a couple of the cameos that we had from Deep Space Nine, as much as I love taking place on Deep Space Nine, I, I felt like they might have been a little bit shoehorned in just because they weren't super necessary like even admiral ross's conversation with kira um i'm not sure how much it added i, I think the scene at the very end with esri getting the communique from Worf that just said 
now, I think is what the the word was in the message. Obviously, that's setting up something for the second book. But I I kind of feel like they could have done something to get around that and have this just a fully Klingon, let's, you know, like, let's have a Martok with Worf and Alexander and, and some of these other characters. Let's let's not even touch Deep Space Nine. We'll slap it on the front to sell some books. But, uh, yeah, I don't think it was totally necessary. Yeah, I'm paging through the book now just to see if anything stands out to me real quick. Because I can't think of anything in the book that I didn't like, but that's a good call out, Casey. I didn't think about that scene with Admiral Ross and Kira. It wasn't that it was a bad scene or I didn't like it, but it didn't really pay off anything. It just was there. You know, we didn't come back to them or or do anything with them. So, again, it's not that I didn't like it, but yeah, you could easily take that out and it, it really doesn't need to be in the story. So yeah, I'll agree with you on that one. Yeah. The only thing I think that that scene does at all is it does add to some of the background of the machinations that have been happening and kind of give you a little bit of context, but you're absolutely right. There's a different way to do that. That doesn't feel like, Oh, and now we're on deep space nine. You know, <laughs> I mean, really the only thing on deep space nine that, that makes any sense is, kind of what we get in uh with Esri. Um and that that she's going to have something to do with this story, which I think is going to be fun and fascinating. Uh one because everyone knows my love for Esri, but it also makes sense that they would want her help in some way that she might be able to help. So um, you know, I think that's that's awesome. And you know, the only thing that I, I think that I could kind of knock the book for is that it did seem like everything moved really fast. And I almost wish that, you know, we have two separate books here and they're short. So I kind of wish that they were almost two full books with a lot more detail and a lot more of that um, because it, it did feel uh, not easy per se, but it just felt like we were able to flow from one situation to the next and one place to the next a little bit too easy um but you know otherwise i think this is one of those things where it's like ah, then, and then there's so many hanging threads that I, I have to wait and see what happens you know with what comes in in book two so all in all uh with book one of the left hand of destiny what would you give it yeah i um uh, i thoroughly enjoyed this um i i think that um I would actually agree with you that it, it did move very, very fast. Um, uh, but kind of the silver lining in that is it made it for made for a pretty easy read. I feel like like not so much that it was written for a younger audience or anything like that, but it it, it was just fast paced. It, it it got you. It, it kept the story moving. Um, but I think overall, I, I thought this was great. Uh, you know, I love Jeffrey Lang, JG Hertzler knocks it out of the park as we've talked about this entire time. Um, so I gave it four out of five of those Land Rovers that um, he pretty much just stole from the Ferengi uh, that ended up breaking down. For me, it didn't move fast. I mean, it was it, it, it moved at a good pace, but it wasn't too fast for me. I didn't feel like it needed to be slow or anything. It, it was it was just right I for me, pacing-wise. So I did enjoy that. I'm not a big fan of going into a book that's all about Klingons, and I didn't feel, I don't know really how to say it, but I almost didn't feel like I was reading a Klingon book, because it wasn't just about honor 
you know, and doing gross things. And I mean, sure, there's some gross things in here and there's some honor in here and stuff. But this is a character book. And this is a book about Martok. And it's about the society and the things that they're going through and the changes they're going through and the politics involved. So it didn't really matter that it's about Klingons. It was just good because it was about this character and these different things that are happening. And so I really did enjoy it. And when I got to the end, I was like, Ooh, I can't wait to get to the next book. So that's a good sign. So I'm going to say, I'm going to give this four and a half arms torn off of the Klingons by some Hercs. Nice. Out of five. Nice. I'm going to, um, you know, I'm right there with you guys. I, I think this is a, a really solid entry. And like you said, Bruce, that, you know, like Klingons can feel overdone, but this felt fresh. And part of it, I think, is that we're trying to kind of deconstruct what's been wrong with the Klingon Empire so that we can rebuild it. Right. We're, we're kind of burning down the house. I mean, you know, the Great Hall of the, of the High Council gets destroyed. Right. Uh, literally blown to pieces and we're kind of doing that here with them as a society which is kind of interesting to to read and so you know i'm i'm right there with both of you i would say uh this is probably oh three and a half out of five crazy ex-girlfriends so you know um yeah it's really good and you would know right because you've had three and a half crazy ex-girlfriends right We'll just say yes, because I think that'll make this conversation end quicker. (laughs) Well, it's been a long time that I've been wanting to read this book and, of course, the next one. So I'm glad we had the opportunity to get to this. And, you know, we're all big DS9 lovers. So that's a plus, too. It's always fun to get on mic and have a giant Martok love fest. And I'm, I'm actually looking forward to getting into book two in a few weeks and seeing how this turns out. Absolutely. I mean, I'm with both of you. Uh, I'm a huge DS9 lover. I'm a huge Martok lover. And I, I think it it's just, this is the type of thing I think that makes great tie-in fiction. You know, these are the type of stories I think that, that really make great tie-in fiction where we can really dig into characters and get to know them better and you know this was the fun of this time period of star trek books they were pretty much letting them do most what they wanted you know um which i think is what makes it so exciting so um well casey we love when you're here and so i'm so glad um that you've been and made i think you're officially now part of the literary treks family uh where can people find you if they want to catch up with you and and you know obviously see what else you've got going on yeah well i am on uh, goodreads letterboxd twitter instagram at knitting tricky and i can also be found on facebook in the babel con uh, the yeah the babel conference I just totally had a had a brain fart there. Um, and then uh, I am also on a podcast on the United Federation of Podcast Network called Mickey's Marvels, where we look at uh, pretty much anything made under the Disney umbrella. And we actually just uh, talked about on the episode that dropped today as we record this about the new Pixar film Turning Red. See it oh, if you fantastic. Yeah, I haven't seen it yet, but it's on my list to watch. So that's awesome. Well, Bruce, you know... 
it's just a joy, buddy. I, I can't even remember how many times and how long we've been podcasting together, but it feels like forever, and that's a great thing. So where can people find you? Yes, you actually messaged me the other day saying how you missed podcasting with me, and it's only been a few weeks, you know? But here we I are just, again. I'm sorry, bro. I just miss you. <laughs> well, if you ever want to reach out to me, Matt, you can find me on Twitter at Admiral underscore Rex. That's Admiral with the underline Rex. And you can also find me on Instagram at just Admiral Rex if you want to go there. And you can find me on the Positively Trek podcast with Dan Gunther. And we go through books, comics, episodes, general Star Trek talking stuff, interviews, whatever it is. We try to go in there and tackle it all up. And uh, what else do I do? Star Wars Report podcast, which is coming near its end soon. We haven't had any new episodes lately, but there will be something coming soon. I don't know all the details. But if you like Star Trek books and you're going to Star Trek Mission Chicago, I'm moderating a panel with authors and fans of books that Friday, April 8th, 2022, in case you're listening in the future. Uh, it's at 1.45 p.m., so come join us for a discussion of books and comics. Man, that's going to be awesome, Bruce. And so, uh, yeah, I'm I'm really excited. Hopefully, you, you got to record that, right? You're going to record that so I, you'll be able to put it somewhere? I'm going to see. I, I heard from somebody else who's doing a panel saying that it, they're not allowed to record it, but we'll oh, see what magic I can work. Yeah, I guess, I guess you know, we got so used to Dragon Con where we could do whatever we wanted. Right. <laughs> but, oh, man. Well, I... You can find me all over the place on social media under the name MattRushing02. So Twitter, Instagram, Letterboxd, Vero, all of those type of places. Of course, here on the network, um, on the whole side of the network that doesn't involve Star Trek, it's called the 602 Club, and we're talking about all of those other fandoms we love. There's some great bonus shows in that feed as well. So you're getting a lot of bang for your buck if you check out the 602 Club. Uh, you can also find me doing Warp 5 as well as The Orb and... The Artificial Tango. So Warp 5 is about Star Trek Enterprise. The Orb is about Star Trek Deep Space Nine. And The Artificial Tango is all about Star Trek Picard. And then, of course, you will find me over on the Nerd Party Network. I've got two shows. One is a finished show I did with Drea Kaufman. And it's a books podcast where we talked about every single chapter of the Harry Potter series one chapter at a time. Uh, and then last but not least, over on Aggressive Negotiations with John Mills as we talk about Star Wars but, as always, thank you so much for joining us. And until next time, live long and read on. What do you call that light reading? To each his own, number one.